Hello everyone, I am Mike Senior and I am here with composer and musical director John Witten for episode 7, Magnificent 7 of the Project Studio Tea Break. Good morning there, Mike. <laughs> Although to be fair, it could be episode 19, given the counting skills I displayed in <laughs> the last episode. Interplanetary, just for the record, has six syllables, not seven. <laughs> hey, 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 there are many different feelings and opinions on that perennially thorny issue. Interplanetary. <laughs> is an equally valid go-to. Although, okay, okay. before you start taking the p- too much, Mr. Witten, mm-hmm. I would just like to point out that you mentioned a song that is literally all one-syllable words, to quote you. <laughs> Having the word only in the title. I stand by that analysis and that statement within experimental margin of errors. Plus or minus three syllables. Plus or minus three syllables. That's a, that song is entirely one syllable words. I maintain that. Well, uh, following last episode and feeling so crushed musically, mm-hmm. I did the next thing before suicide, which was... I went on Gear Sluts. Right. And I also posted on the SOS forum. Oh, my. And sure enough, there were people who bailed me out, who restored my faith in humanity. I think this is the first time I will ever, ever be able to say that Gear Sluts has restored my faith in humanity. I think they owe humanity a few of those, actually, at this stage. They're well in debt, <laughs> aren't they? I think overall. So, here we go. I'm on tenterhooks. Give me what we've got. Well, I think this is a bit of a cheat, this one. It's also unforgettable, because French Montana did unforgettable last year. Yeah, I See, every single time I have to use my fingers. I mean, at least you're not having to count on your nose. (laughs) When I was at school, there was a kid who was removed from the prefect's table for counting on his nose. (laughs) Which I thought was great. Fast times. Justin Bieber, of all people, came out with Common Denominator. That's another five in 2009. Okay. Pitbull, International Love. Okay. In, I think, 2010 or something like that. Very nice. And then we get up to the six syllables. I'm ramping up here. Katy Perry. Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you give me this one, we got a Facebook... Um, oh, fabulous. God, I feel technically inept. A, a Facebook letter. Thingy. From... Um, <laughs> From a wonderful John Seals. Hello, John. Hey, John. And it's such a wonderful message. I want want to read it in full. Go on, fire away. He said, Before you bemoan too strenuously the dumbing down of lyrical language in recent pop songs, consider the linguistic maven, Katy Perry, and her gloriously misscanned hit. (laughs) And the, 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 um, the stress has been written in here. So... A gloriously miscant hit, unconditionally, <laughs> which rocks an incredible six mangled syllables to which I lost several layers of tooth enamel when forced to listen in the car with my then eight-year-old daughter. So thank you, John. <laughs> oh, wow. So it appears that Katy Perry is a serial offender because I've got another one. Really? That wasn't your Katy Perry six syllables? What date was that? Do you know what it was? I have no idea. Well, uh, back in 2010, she had extraterrestrial. E.T. Mm-hmm. That was a big hit. That was huge. I knew that song. And not only did it have extraterrestrial in it, which is six syllables, it had supernatural, which is another five. It's quite something. But the real hurter for someone who is supposedly in charge of scanning the charts every week for, for Sound on Sound magazine, mm-hmm. someone pointed out that in the charts, at the moment we were bemoaning the lack of this words. Oh, God. Eminem had the song, at the, you know, the top 10 Billboard, top 10 UK charts, <laughs> Lucky You. <laughs> In which he raps the word acetaminophen. Wow. All right, tea breakers. It is possible on this occasion our fingers left the pulse. Momentarily. (laughs) Just slipped off (laughs) the cultural beat maker. Just to say another aside. Of course. He and his fellow rapper rap so many words in this song. 
I actually worked it out. 1,400 syllables in under four minutes. <laughs> I'll translate it into terms that we classical mooks can understand. Yeah, yeah. That's the equivalent of getting through modern major general once every 40 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is a competition that I absolutely want to have at some point in this podcast. Is um, you can get through modern major general quickest. How how many syllables was that? Fourteen hundred syllables in under four minutes. Fourteen hundred syllables. Mental. Wow. But it gets better. In two thousand and eight, the Billboard number no. five swagger like us yeah. by rapper Ti. He rapped a seven syllable. Autobiographical. Autobiographic. A six-syllable revolutionary. Wow. And three five-syllables. Exaggeration, <laughs> hereditary, and extraordinary. Okay, rappers are our salvation. There you go. Autobiographical, that's delicious. <sighs> Incidentally, for anyone tapping along on their calculators at home, that gives Eminem... <laughs> I'm still obsessed with that last thing. Uh, that gives Eminem uh, syllables per second of almost six. Almost six <laughs> syllables per second. Syllables per second. <laughs> syllables per second. Like, that's hard. It's really tricky. That's difficult to maintain. Are you sure your maths is right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> That's mental. He's churning them out. Well, th thank you, Tea Breakers and broader, you know, musical community for... I for, feel reinflated. For reinflating us and um, for reheating us like an old microwavable meal, possibly <laughs> one too many times. But, um, yeah. How, how glorious, how wonderful to hear. I feel that every episode, we do need to mention Mike Sfamele. It's becoming a running, wow, this <laughs> running is, topic. This has got legs, clearly. Following the, uh, our discussion of Phantom Power, mm -hmm. um, I realised I needed to spell the word taser. So uh, I looked it up and realised that they sell tasers on Amazon. <laughs> Mike. And in my usual Mike. internet plug hole kind of way, <laughs> oh dear. I didn't buy myself a... <laughs> I didn't yes! buy myself a taser. We managed to use the sound effect board. It's happened. I have waited seven episodes for this. Here we are. At last. I didn't actually buy a taser. Okay, but just in terms of framing, there's something worrying about a story where you start by assuring me that you didn't buy a lethal weapon. You expect some sort of praise and recognition for, for not buying a taser. So I am appropriately nervous, but do carry on. Well, then I got down the internet plug hole of checking the 472 Amazon reviews of this particular taser that I clicked on, <laughs> which included some absolute classics. I'll, I'll just read you a couple. My son volunteered to test it on himself. <laughs> no. He shocked his thigh for well less than a second and he was hunched over saying, Oh, LOL. The inclusion of the direct quote as well, as if it was important to kind of nail down exactly what the son said in this moment. You think, how daft do you have to be to test a taser on yourself? Pure goals. Uh, this, is, this is the other review that absolutely made me laugh like a drain. I have seen this in action. Young male, age 30, 6 foot 2 inches, 190 pounds, 8% body fat, decided to prove a point. <laughs> so you think, okay, I know where this is going, but then comes the bombshell. As a mother, you're never comfortable teasing your own son. Oh no! <laughs> No, why are all these parents <laughs> testing tasers on their children? Like, what? Is this the newest trend in parenting? Is this. However, his dad yelling, do it. Him saying, I'm a Greek god, a beast. I told my son, okay, I'll do it on the fatty part of your body, your butt cheek. <laughs> it's the image. Wow, he dropped like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> 
I do not think anyone will admit to using it on their only child. Oh. Well, we know it works. Okay. Oh. I don't know about you. When I get together with my family, we go for walks. And maybe we'll, we'll do a puzzle. Board games <laughs> are a favourite. We've never gotten near the point where, where my mum has said, you know what, guys? I, I've got this can of mace that's just sitting around. <laughs> Big white eyes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Say cease and desist. And of course, this month, we also have yet more celebrating to do. There's more? Because we now have enough Tea Break patrons to put together an entire Ultimate Frisbee team. <laughs> you and me and our five patrons can now go out there and rock the Ultimate Frisbee. I think we have a, a moral responsibility. We have a moral imperative to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. That's magnificent. So we in honour of our patrons, my daughters and I, we got the respective biscuits for Patrick, Nate and Brad and we customised them. We've initialed them specifically for them. They're dedicated oh. to our new patrons. Oh, Mike. So welcome. These are monogrammed biscuits. It's classy. Thank you so very much. And anyone who finds themselves unwillingly within hearing distance of our voices and wonders why on earth we're chatting such nonsense so loudly, it's their fault. These are the <laughs> names of the people you need to hunt down. The ultimate Frisbee conspiracy. The ultimate Frisbee conspiracy, a progressive rock band I would absolutely listen I to. I reckon so. And now it's time for the news. This week, this month, today, now. We're headed to the West End, to Broadway, to the land of musicals, musical theatre. Grease paint, footlights. <laughs> sure, grease paint, black and white minstrels, uh, uh, musical review shows. <laughs> I was going to ask what the last musical you saw was, but from that, I've got to assume it was sometime in the 19th century. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> no, I, I like quite a few musicals. I think the last one I saw in the flesh... Oh, that's really difficult. I think... I, I definitely saw Phantom on DVD. That's probably the most recent one I've seen. The film remake or the... It was a film of the Albert Hall kind of 25th anniversary one. Okay. And, and do you have any current favourites? Is this a world that you are invested in? Phantom is definitely my favourite. Really? Of all, of all the musicals. Really? Yeah. You have the nerve to get at me about Iron Audi and then you you, you wrap <laughs> out an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical as your favourite piece of quote art unquote <laughs> in the genre my goodness mike the nerve like, we're gonna have to have another grudge match poll up then <laughs> i you know what you know what we are come forth modern musical aficionados who know the value of book of mormon avenue q hamilton and shout down this luddite yeah yeah I'll put that up on facebook <laughs> but there's exciting news because there's something coming to the west end truly for everyone a, a, a right exciting once in a lifetime musical <laughs> and theater event i'm poised it's a television show or it was a television show it's a musical adaptation of a tv show okay let me think uh the a-team i wish oh i would watch that so hard good wouldn't it I mean, you'd want B.A. Baracus to be some huge, great kind of Basso Profundo guy, wouldn't you? Completely. Murdoch will be the countertenor. And then you have, like, car stunts on stage. I'm not sure if we should publish this. Keep that to ourselves. I think maybe we need to kind of keep this under wraps. Do we bought the rights? Yes. A-team the musical. They have to get into a plane at some point, because that's an important part of every single episode. We have that flying out over the audience. And the great thing is that because no one ever got hurt in an A-team episode... <laughs> 
forever. It would be completely safe for kids. It would. It would be a family-friendly romp. <laughs> and they'd build, a, I don't know, whatever it was, a nuclear reactor out of paper clips and, <laughs> and spit. Um, yeah, yeah. As, as they want to do. Okay, so it's not the A-Team. Um, no, it's a classic British comedy. So could it be Faulty Towers? Okay, it should be is my answer to that, because that so deserves one. Although last year in Edinburgh, there was a Faulty Towers dining experience. <laughs> one of these restaurant theatre things. You wouldn't want to touch the food, would you? <laughs> no! No! I think it was the most ill-conceived idea I'd ever heard. <laughs> you want to be on the other side of a screen watching the madness and being glad you're not there. Oh, dear. The idea of actually entering into it is horrifying. No, this is the... Um, World-breaking news that only fools and horses... Oh, that was going to be my next guess, actually. Was it actually? I am very glad to yeah, hear Yeah, initially I thought, well, what's the stupidest one? I thought, is it going to be, like, cannon and ball? Or... <laughs> <laughs> How on earth are they going to manage that? Mike, I wish I could tell you I don't know, but sadly, the press release was quite explicit, so I do know. And it, oh, well, and I've, got it, I've got it! Do tell. I mean, you know Phantom of the Opera. The chandelier comes down onto the stage. I'm familiar with it, They could just reuse the chandelier. Yes. That must be it. Phantom's closing, and they thought, what other thing can we have that needs a falling chandelier? That needs a big glass. You are dangerously and upsettingly close to the truth, Mike, because... Oh, no! No, okay, okay. We're wasted here. We should be commissioning musicals. We're writing six an episode, and they're wonderful. Here's, here's, just, here's the quote. I can hardly bring myself... <laughs> The musical will combine well-known scenes from the original TV show with hilarious new material. Now, that to me is so upsettingly obscene because to, to make a new story for these characters and put it on stage is one thing. Yeah. But what they're doing is a clip show. Yeah. They're doing a jukebox musical of a sitcom. It's <laughs> so unacceptable. Furthermore, most of the supporting characters will also appear, including Raquel, Cassandra, Boise, Marlene, Trigger, Denzel, Mickey, Pierce, Mike, the Driscoll brothers, others. Oh, I mean, no. It's just begging for applause. It sounds so cynical that they're going to bring on everyone anyone oh. might recognise. I mean, what makes you think that anything about modern musicals is cynical? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... God, we've been afflicted by the whole modern jukebox thing for so long. But, I mean, the thing is with songs, you could at least take the songs and put them into a plot, mm. which is basically what they've done with a lot of those portmanteau musical things where they just chuck all their hits in one musical, right? A lot of those hugely successful musicals like Viva Forever, the Spice Girls musical that was <laughs> that lost more than five million pounds oh. on its seven-month run. Oh. How richly deserved. That's the industry standard, as you say. It's because it was such classic music. It was those sing-along, <laughs> toe-tapping hits that we... <laughs> all wanted to forget for 20 years. There was a great review which said the problem with this musical is there just are not enough showstoppers in their two and a half album long career. Which is, you know, a fair comment to be making. Well, it seems that it was a showstopper. It's by nature. It stopped the show. Nothing but showstoppers. But with comedy... It's like comedy sketches are already little sections of plot. Mm -hmm. It's like, how are you supposed to put little sections of plot into a new plot? That just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you just answered your own question there. It makes no sense whatsoever, and no one cares, because I guarantee you, you get to see the leaning on the bar and falling over bit. Yeah, oh, there's going to be that. You get to see the chandelier bit. Yeah. And I don't know, it feels 
better than YouTube? How are they going to deal with a Reliant Robin, though? Oh, they'll have it on there, and they'll get a huge round of applause, and it'll be pushed on and made out of cardboard. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm feeling very cynical about it now, because I love musicals. Well, you know what this means. What's that? It's going to be a huge hit. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to stick it to me. Yeah. But I think it was inevitable, right? Because like you say, we have been inundated with jukebox musicals. Oh, yeah. Since the ABBA Spectacular. Do you remember what it's called? Oh, do I ever. Mamma Mia. No. The original blockbuster jukebox musical in the West End was called Abacadabra. Oh, <laughs> A good pun always goes a long way. In 1983, that one is. It's like the covers band Bjorn again, isn't it? We <laughs> <laughs> come across that. But you're right, Mamma Mia was the one that broke the floodgates. It broke my will to live. I'm a massive, massive ABBA fan. Mm -hmm. And I just hate Mamma Mia. And not only do I hate the show and the concept of the show in general, but I think the film is awful. And the problem is my kids love it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm cursed to have Mamma Mia going on the background and marvelling at the appalling acting and rubbish singing of... Colin Firth just cannot sing, can he? You can tell from the amount of auto-tune. The smouldering copy of Melodyne you can just see out of shot. <laughs> <laughs> the sparking plugins. Oh, dear. Okay, I will confess I haven't seen it. Don't, don't. <laughs> it's too late for me. Save yourselves. I'm surprised that it's that bad. Because, you know, I like Piers Brosnan. He was a perfectly serviceable Bond. Yep. I like Colin Firth. He was a perfectly serviceable, awkward, romantic lead in, the, yep. you know, his film career. And uh, what's her name? The leading lady. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. She's a national treasure. How did they get together and make a truly risable film? It's very easy. <laughs> yeah. It's the, the fact that they all artistically come from the same place, which is money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, it just stinks of everyone going, woo, this is going to make us a lot of money, and phoning it in to the most extreme extent. Yeah. Either they're phoning it in, or they're hamming like there is no tomorrow. It is the hammiest thing I've seen in a long time. Pierce Brosnan also can't sing to save his life. Oh, God. Can he not? It's just horrible. I just hate the idea of doing movie musicals with actors. Like the movie version of Les Miserables. Les Mis, yeah, we, we were going to wind up here. Basically, the only person who did a, even a half-decent job out of that, I think, was Eddie Redmayne, who it appears can actually sing. <laughs> Which must have been such a relief for the producers, because it's clear that at no point in the casting process <laughs> did, they, did they check this. So it must have just been a glorious surprise. They said, guys, guys. Put away the racks and racks of audio equipment. <laughs> it turns out this one can, he can sing. I'll tell you what, if you've got any spares, take them over to the guys who are working on Russell Crowe. Oh, dear. <laughs> and what's his name? Hugh Jackman did okay. He has some experience with that kind of thing. He didn't do too badly. But again, I love the original cast recording of that. Right. And that's got, oh, I can't remember what the guy's name is. Kurt Colm. Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> Colm Wilkinson, isn't it? Admittedly, if you listen to it, he's hamming a little bit on the, on the recording, but there are so many really, really good singers mm -hmm. on that cast recording. And if you even have a passing knowledge of that kind of stuff, and you watch this thing that just... It's just like, can I just switch the sound off and sync up the original <laughs> cast recording with that? Oh, it's just horrible. There was a big SOS article about it, and apparently they deliberately tried to use... Only on-set sound. Really? So it's all mic'd up and you're hearing stuff that was actually recorded pretty much all as they were doing the film takes. So it wasn't even the actual performers overdubbing themselves. 
it was what they performed in shot. Yeah. Wow. Because normally musicals are done by recording the soundtrack first and then lip syncing. Right, yeah. And some people have done it by doing ADR. But the guy who did Les Miserables deliberately wanted to try and make it live sound as much as possible. And there are loads of like little miniature mics on all the performers to pick up the sound. Yeah. And there was a guy off camera who was basically um, playing the piano part for it and following the performers while they were singing. Incredible. So then they orchestrated the whole thing after the fact to sync with the live singers. And even then it was I, I know. I know. If you described this project to me without me seeing the video, I'd be like, great. Amazing. How brave. It's like, well, that tests the concept of destruction, basically. Yeah, yeah a little bit. I'm happy if we don't have to do that again. Uh, or at least do it with people who can actually f***ing sing. <laughs> oh, God. Mike, if only there was an industry, if only there was a whole profession of people dedicated to being able to act and sing. Yeah, well, I mean, that was clearly the reason why they cast Russell Crowe, is because they just couldn't <laughs> find anyone else qualified. I mean, come on. Where else are you going to find a grumpy-looking white man in this day and age? Yes. That's such a niche casting. <laughs> uh, bless them. There was a review I read for uh, Cloud Atlas when that came out, oh, right. which called it a courageous, brilliant failure. <laughs> And, and what you're describing of the sound methodology in that makes me think it might apply here as well. That was a courageous, brilliant failure, and the casting was a cowardly rubbish failure. <laughs> <laughs> just the flavour of failure yeah. is the only thing differentiating them. <laughs> so just one other thing, when I was researching jukebox musicals and yeah. all that kind of stuff, the first one that really looks like it fits the definition mm. was in 1975, it was called The Night That Made America Famous. And this is a very patriotic American musical <laughs> about a family of hippies uh, uh, all right. whose house catches on fire and they are saved by a hard-working plumber. <laughs> okay, right, so it's a kind of domestic drama. Which is still a better story than Viva Forever. <laughs> I, I'm going to maintain forever and a day. Um, uh, yeah, I, I vote for that, yeah, I agree. On the bright side, Mike, I, I understand that you have in your lifetime written and produced music, is that true? Once or twice. <laughs> Once or twice. Well, in that case, my exciting news for you is that before long, there will be a jukebox musical of your life. Mm. Because in the 90s, there were less than 10 of note. Between 2000 and 2010, more than 40. Ooh. So far in this decade, there have been almost 55 oh. so far this year. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting down to the B-list now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're going to be on Bandcamp before you know it. Do you know Peter Allen? Not off the top of my head. No, me neither, but he's got a Broadway jukebox musical at the moment. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if Pete can do it, yeah. if Pete can do it, why can't we? Anyone can live the dream. So, to anyone who disagrees with us and everything we've said and everything we stand for... Only Fools and Horses, the musical, will be opening at the Theatre Royal Haymarket in February of 2019. <laughs> Grab your tickets. Get those tickets now. Before it closes after the press week. <laughs> Goodness me. So now it's time for us to squirm once more in our studio chairs. <laughs> oh. Or face palm of the month. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> what you got for us this month? Well, I feel that we've been focusing a bit too much on the past. We're making it seem <laughs> a little bit much, as if we've grown up now and mm-hmm. face palming is a thing of the past. We've matured into a face palm free zone. <laughs> and what's wrong with that illusion, Mike? What's wrong with that lie? You know, I, I take a lot of comfort in that particular <laughs> complete and utter fabrication. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about a face palm that. I'm still on the tail end of. I've been facepalming myself pretty consistently for the last two or three weeks. <laughs> this is a to-the-minute facepalm. Yeah, it's still dragging on. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I went on holiday three or four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And before I went on holiday, I was trying to finish up mixing or get, make a lot of progress in mixing a project that I'd done. You know the one we talked about in the first episode where we were always building... When you were having to build all the, the yeah. stands and... The, yeah. Exactly. Now, I was trying to finish up the mixes for that project. Mm-hmm. And so I worked through like 14 songs, mm-hmm. did 14 mixes, mm-hmm. just trying to get the first drafts done so that I could send them to the band and they could listen to them and then I could come back and deal with the revisions when I came back from my holiday. This all sounds very regular and professionally done, if I may say so. On the face of it, it makes so much sense, but actually I set myself up for a massive fall because basically what happened mm-hmm. was that then I sent them the 14 first drafts, get back from my holiday and they say, well, in general... We'd like a bit more drums and for it to sound a bit more live and for the vocals to be smoother. Okay. So at that point, I need to go back into 14 mixes and do the same thing <laughs> in every one. <laughs> it's like, oh! Were you tempted at any point during this to, to take your WAVs and just drag the stereo files into one big long project and then just put a couple of plugins in on the master? I would have been so tempted, but there was just no getting away from it. You can't make something a bit more live or make the drums more present or something like that. Or, <sighs> you know, you just can't deal with those kind of revisions when you're at a mastering level. Yeah. Oh, and the thing about it is that what I should have done is I should have done like a couple of representative songs to completion. Yeah. So that then. We could work through the whole, oh, well, we're referencing against this, we're referencing against that. Right. And, uh, you know, that's the other mistake I make. I didn't nail them down well enough to give me references. So they didn't have reference tracks. Then I get the references and I go, well, yeah, of course this isn't right because now I get exactly what it is. Because I didn't know that was the sound, yeah. And so I just mugged myself. It's just being complacent because I've done like five or six albums for these guys before. Oh, okay. So it's not unreasonable to think that you might kind of know their sound, know what they're after. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I mean, I'll judge it roughly according to the sound of their previous record, Mm -hmm. you know. And So I had, like, referenced it a bit myself and just assumed that, like, on the previous record, there'd only be a few revisions. But then things had just subtly changed in the interim. In that previously there was one guy who was kind of in charge of it and then that's changed and now it's become more democratic, which is like the kiss of death for mixed revisions. (laughs) Particularly on a band that has eight people in it. I've only occasionally worked on theatre shows which have like very hands-on producers. Yeah. Um, and that changes it from having the director in the room to a director and six producers. And they're all giving different notes oh. to the actors. Yeah. And they never take the time to have a meeting amongst themselves first. Yeah. To decide, okay, this is what we want. Yeah. So you're just getting contradictory nonsense back and forth. This is the thing that guts me about the whole thing, is that I've dealt with this so many times before, and it's like, how did I miss it? (laughs) The thing is, if I'd done the first two, I could have just mixed directly to that point, rather than mixing to another point and then mixing somewhere else. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, because that involves then more stages of revision than I would otherwise have had to do, they've kind of got themselves into the mindset that, 
oh yeah, we can just keep asking for revisions. So ah, uh, then so then you're getting lots of little tiny revisions the whole time, getting up to like draft number nine of wow. the mix. It's like, what's going on here? That's a lot. But the thing is, I can't blame anyone but myself, and that's the worst kind of facepalm. <laughs> it's not like I can rail at them for being idiots because they're not. No, I mean they they've paid money for me to mix a record. They deserve a good product, and I can't say that anyone was at fault because I could have said to them, we should do it this way, actually, oh. and then they would have happily gone that direction. They would have done it the way I wanted to do it. And there would have been no hassle. Oh. So, okay, so our next project, Mike, is to work out what can usefully and productively be done with these 14 mixes <laughs> with not smooth vocals, quiet drums, and a very studio sound. Like, you've got those, and you've invested your time and expertise into them. So what do we make? Like, is this a... That'll be the 25th anniversary reissue. I'll have that as a bonus disc. Sometimes, like, as bonuses or, or, or anniversary ones, people release live albums... And you could do like a very unlive album. Yeah. Special release. <laughs> with with extra clinicism. Yeah. And there is one mix where brilliantly, I think they've there aren't many bits in it. And they've said, Yeah, can you push the drums up? And can you push the guitar and the piano up? Hmm. And can you push the bass up? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just poised for them saying, you know, I think we need a bit more vocals in this now. <laughs> So, I'm hoping it's not going to arrive because I think at that point I might actually shoot myself. I can always tell in bands when we're starting to get to know each other and we're starting to feel comfortable because yeah. it, it sounded in that first one like all they really wanted was the vocals to be quieter. But you, you never say to someone, I think your part should be quieter. That's just not done. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> to start with a sound check, when an engineer will ask what you want in your monitors, you go through all the things that you want. Yeah. It's when you get to that comfortable stage where you can say everything except him. Yeah. <laughs> I want, and then, then you know that there's a, just a degree of trust and friendship in the group. Or so much aggression that it's just kind of flooded out onto the surface. Well, you see, I have to defer to your experience there because I have absolutely no live performance experience of that type. I've never, ever had to use fallback on stage. Really? No, never. You lucky sod. I've, I've used the odd wireless mic, but it's only ever been through a PA and there's been no kind of fallback like that. The luxury. I know. I mean, just dealing with headphones in a studio environment it just makes me think, no, I'm so glad I'm not a front of house or I'm not a motor engineer. Yeah. Oh, It's a thankless job. And, um... Radio 3 these days, they, they've got a bunch of these, and Radio 6 uses them too. On your music stand, as a musician, you just have a mixer with all the channels. Yeah, a lot of studios are doing this now too. Turns out it's really hard, Mike. Like, I way prefer asking a monitor technician for 30 different kind of... Just an edge up halfway between there and that. It's The levels are good, but I just need it, like, darker. Yeah. Like, I would much rather do that than just have, like, four controls and have to try and make a sound that works for myself. It's like, it's all on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got no one to blame left. It's awful. It's a part of what holds a band together. Part of what the social cohesion is, is when you mess up, just having a snide look across to a fellow musician and a gesture at the monitors. <laughs> to my mind, that's part of what a monitor technician is paid for. Taking that completely undeserved flack. Yeah, and, it's danger um, money. Absolutely. Fall guy. Absolutely. And having their name forgotten by the lead singer at the end of the gig when they tried to thank them. <laughs> Oh, 
All of which facepalm action brings us screeching to a halt in our Q&A section with a <laughs> kind of clunky link of some type. Because we have a source for celebration this month. We have a whole bunch of reader questions. We had one from Daniel Plappert before. It's a, oh, it's a job lot. A bundle. A wheelbarrow load. It's a joy. From our dedicated and wonderful listener, handsome, kind, yep. generous... Hiding in my inbox. <laughs> Probably very strong. It's from Dariush. Is this one from Dariush? Our very first patron. Although he's going under the name Derek on the uh, in the in the email. I think he kind of Oh, the, hence my confusion. Yeah, I think he goes between the two names. Either that or I've just insulted him by saying that he's someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so the listener formerly known as Dariush. It's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. You've got the one guy who who patronizes the site, and you've got the other guy who thinks up questions, and there's this metamorphosis. No, that that's Dr. Jekyll and the other equally helpful in different ways, Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll mm. and, and <laughs> Engineer Jekyll. You know, we're just two, yeah, that's the one. two brilliant professional <laughs> men who sometimes swap jobs. Yeah. Um, Clark Kent and Superman. That that's is that is much, much better than Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so the link I was gonna say was that the first question he asked was. What is the most annoying, legit studio activity? You know, a thing that you actually do have to do in the course of a day-to-day project studio life that is really annoying. And this is one of the things that I find most annoying. This is why I've been facepalming myself so hard. <laughs> is that I just hate having to do anything again. Mm. This is one of the reasons why I save, what is it, reflexively. I'm saving like every 15 minutes a new version number of whatever project I'm working on. The idea of having to redo an hour of vocal tuning or something it just makes me want to headbutt my monitor controller <laughs> I can one up you on the reflexive version savings actually oh go on then I bet that when you start a new project it's something like happy camel song one I mean is that fair yeah 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 if I were doing that project Mike and this is true I would name that project happy camel song zero zero one you know what that is really freaky yeah because that's actually what I do <laughs> <laughs> So we are maybe as bad as each other. We are equally as bad. Wow. We are numerical suffix twins. And to give you how facepalmic <laughs> this remix thing has been. Facepalmic, I like it. I've got past version 250 on one of the mixes I've been oh, working on. I'm not sure I've ever managed, <laughs> fallen to, descended to. Well, it used to be a mark of, of whether a mixed rescue was really a proper mixed rescue. <laughs> I, I didn't feel it really fully arrived until it got past version 200. <laughs> Wait, so are you saying that's when it became a rescue or that's when it became a mix flogging a dead horse? It just kind of felt like I had to get to that point before I was within sight of the finishing line. Goodness me. No, I've got a few over 100. I don't think I've got anything over 200, actually, at the moment. Amateur. I was going to say, no stamina on me. That's the issue. (laughs) Now, scores. Yes, okay. Scores I don't have that kind of discipline with because they always branch more. Mm. So there are things like Roman numerals 7003, final for export, um, (laughs) less violin, Christmas concert 2. Oh, God, yeah. Trying to find the most recent versions of that for Sensor are horrible. Anyway, so that's one of my legit most annoying student activities, having to do anything again. If if I lose an hour's work and have to do it again, it makes me Mm -hmm. so depressed. What about you, Wilson? Give me a candidate. DSing a hi-hat. What? DSing a hi-hat. <laughs> <laughs> that, might, that might slightly break the um, the legitimate proviso. <laughs> Why were you having to DS a hi-hat? Just because there was so much of it. There's so much 
obsessing in it. Yeah. I mean, hi-hat is one of those things that is the bane of the recording engineer's life often, particularly in Project Studios. Because it spills on everything or, or what's the issue? Hi-hat projects more sideways than up and down, whereas most cymbals mm. project up and down. And so often, if you're in a small room, it bounces off the wall mm. and comes back into the microphones off the wall. And that makes it much stronger. It's also that... Really, a lot of drummers hit the hi-hat too hard. Okay. They hit the hi-hat harder than they hit, say, the toms or they hit the cymbals. And so you're fighting against it right from the word go. You also have uh, the issue that if someone's put the snare mic in the wrong place, then you can get masses of hi-hat spill on the snare. Mm. Or if you compress something too much, you can get loads of hi-hat spill coming up on other mics. So you're, you're, I often find myself fighting hi-hat spill. Well, you were saying to me the other day that you often like get a, get a multi-track drum kit and just throw away the hi-hat mic straight away. Absolutely. And I, I do find myself doing that alarmingly often. It gets everywhere. It's the auditory equivalent of dog hair. Yeah. It's like having a having a golden retriever running around your house. Actually, on this on this mix project I was just doing, the, the drummer said, oh, can I have a bit more hi-hat on that? Oh, yeah. Not realising that I put up no hi-hat mic. <laughs> and I went, yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> I don't know what I did to do it. I just, just twiddled the knobs. I think I just turned up the Tom mics or something to get the hi-hat spill. Yeah, no, I'm sure there was plenty of it there, as there is everywhere. And he was like, oh, yeah, great, great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I tell you, for real, <laughs> one of the most annoying things that I find in the studio... Go on, then. It's when I have to move an entire project left or right a bit. Like, if I've been a complete idiot and I've started my project at zero... No. Yeah, I know. It happens sometimes, even to me. And then I've got to shift everything and and always, like, some automation moves that wasn't meant to or, or it doesn't move and it was... Oh, right, right. Oh, goodness me. Stuff shortens that was meant to lengthen. Yeah. Maybe there's a project change, a master fade, tempo change. Yeah. And I, I can just never get it straight again after that. Yeah. It's a lost cause at that point. It's kind of worth just deleting it all <laughs> and starting again, starting from scratch. Mm, mm. You know, and it's my fault. I just didn't bounce it before I tried to move the whole thing over. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's awful. I seem to remember Melodyne doesn't track very well on my version of Melodyne either. So I do that and then the, the Melodyne audio is not syncing with anything. Completely. That's why I always bounce down Melodyne now. I never, I never leave it in Melodyne. No, wise man. Always, always, always. Yeah. Another one I thought was... I do quite a lot of location recording. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the recording I do is on location. Okay. And so inevitably that means that I have a car full of crap <laughs> and then I have to unload it and spread out wherever I'm going. Right. With loads of, and particularly loads of cables. Okay. Now, as a recording engineer, I have a deep personal interaction with my mic cables. <laughs> you know, mic cables are important to me because I use them all the time for, for everything, right? I've got a collection of microphone cables. I know what they all are. I know how many I have. I know, I know they all work. <laughs> okay. And so at the end of the session... I have more clearing up to do, almost always, than any of the musicians do. Naturally, yeah. And so there's always the point at which the musicians have cleared up and they want to lock up the room or whatever, which is understandably. And they're like, oh, can we help you pack up? And they'll start grabbing cables. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And the thing is, I had this kind of internal <laughs> battle with myself because... <laughs> Listeners, you can't oh, see this, but the, the pain... I'm holding my head the, in my hands. The deep pain in Mike's eyes is real. And the problem is that I know how I like my microphone cables yep. tidied yep. up. Of course. I know how I like them bundled. Of There's course. a certain way I do it. And it's a way that I do it in order that when I next get them out, they don't curl around each other like they just love themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know those cables. Amorously entwined, yeah. They're seriously kind of erotic cables. <laughs> they, they're twisted around each other like no tomorrow. Knotted. Knotted they are. The thing is, when you get one of those cables out, when you just want to put a mic up, yeah. then you've got to spend like a minute and a half just trying to get the thing untangled or whatever, and then it never lies flat and people trip over it. Oh, so it God. just drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so what will happen is that people will clear up and they go, oh, I'll sort that out for you, and they kind of wrap it around their elbow, and you go, oh, no. Enthusiastic. 
enthusiastic, <laughs> well-intentioned people. So then, the annoying bit that I don't like doing mm. is that then I get home, where inevitably I haven't been able to stop them doing this. Yeah. And I don't want to be the, the asshole that says, nope, you're going to coil it my way. <laughs> cable coiling masterclass. Some elitist cable coiler. I get home, and then I have to get all my microphone cables out and like, shake them out yep. to get rid of all these numerous twists that have been put in them <laughs> and then recoil them or re-kind of bundle them up again. Oh, God. You know, it ten times the work that it would have been for you to just yeah. coil the wires at the end of your own session. And even then, when I've done it, it still comes back to haunt me because I never get all the twists out of them. Mm. And the next time on the session, there's always that remaining twist that makes me kind of grind my teeth a little bit next time I get the cables out. Yeah, the scar left on your psyche. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, and it's such a shame because it comes from such a nice principle. Oh, yeah. I think, I, in fact, I think I'm going to now start saying to people, look... Yeah, I'd love you to help me clear up the cables, mm -hmm. but can you just pick up the cables, don't coil them or anything, and just put them in the box? Oh, what? Just ram them in there? Just stuff them in the box, don't do anything <laughs> with them, because then at least I only have to coil them once. Okay, okay, but maybe there's a tactical solution you're missing here. Maybe you've just got to get yourself to those, get yourself to the cables first. Leave the stands up. Let them do stands. Stands are easy. Yeah, but that's the hostage fortune, though. I always do the mics first. Yeah, no, okay, that figures. Because if I don't, someone's going to trip over a cable or trip over a mic stand and then one of my mics going to bust. What's burning in me now is a desire to have a cable coiling throwdown with you to see whether you've got your own method or, or you do it the correct way, like me. Yeah, because just then, I thought I saw you miming wrapping it around your elbow. <laughs> like a lasso no, or something. No, I would, I would never do that. Like, yeah. I mean, I would hope not. I would walk out of this podcast. I would just stand up. <laughs> In disgust. You'd never see me again. Absolutely. The <laughs> thing is, I know I'm a bit anal about it. I've come to terms <laughs> with the fact that I'm a bit anal about it. First step it. submitting it. Because when I was still in the Sound on Sound editorial department, yeah. and we were commissioning articles and whatever else... Okay. They had a, their flat plan board where they plan what's going to be in subsequent issues. And there were always many more things in, for every issue than we could get in. Mm -hmm. And so there were always a bunch of flat plan little magnetic tiles with things written on them that kind of migrated from issue to issue. And at one point, I suggested a cable coiling workshop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it became a byword for the article we're never going to run because it's too anal and boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cable coiler. Yeah. And even now, some of my ex-colleagues will rib me with the oh, cable coiler. God, I would. I would. <laughs> Honestly, I should have taken that little magnetic flat plan tile with me and put it on my wall and framed it because it was never, ever going to run. <laughs> i tell you another job. Okay, okay. Which is trying to find a good sound in a small room when it's your live room and your mix room. It's the everything room. Oh, because yeah. you find yourself putting on headphones and holding a mic, waving the mic around like it's like you're divining <laughs> for water or something, um, yeah. and pretending that you can tell the difference between what's coming through the headphones and what you're just hearing live in the room. And and I, okay, maybe there are people who can. I can't. There is so much just guesswork involved in that. I know. I've seen so many times people recommending this. And I just can't get it. I've never been able to like put on a pair of headphones, even with like, something like acoustic guitar, and wave the microphone around and go, oh, oh yeah, now I found a good place. Yeah, yeah. I've never ever been able to do that. It has so little relationship with what I actually hear coming out of speakers, what's in my headphones while I'm right next to the instrument and there's bleed coming through of the headphones. Course. I tell you what I tend to do is I'll put on my headphones and I'll wave the mic around and then I'll put it in the place that I put it to record acoustic guitars. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's a ritual. Absolutely. You do the little dance. Absolutely. And then you pray to the god of a to, to kind of make it all okay in the end. <laughs> Which brings us to our final segment of the day, the famous and infamous What is Your Jam? 
introduced today by a foley that I came up with and that I'm very excited yeah. about, Mike. Because I feel like sometimes our foleys have got stuck in the past. They're traditional, they're classic, they, they basically use Stone Age technology. Old-fashioned. Check this out. Well, that smelled wonderful. <laughs> okay, it's. <laughs> I'm gonna make some sound. It's gonna sound like I'm trying to justify something here, but I'm not. It's gonna sound like I'm getting defensive. What you've got to imagine is my grandmother spreading butter on toast because that woman could take butter fresh out the fridge and spread it on the thinnest white toast. Wow. And she would do it by just like whipping up these tiny little curls of butter through a science now lost to mankind, and then just whisking those across the I bread. mean, those are forearms to tremble in front of. <laughs> they were. She she once beat my older brother, who was then about 15, so she must have been uh, about 75. She beat him in an arm wrestle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, for the rest of her life, refused a rematch, very wisely. <laughs> so, very sensible. With, Quit while you're ahead. With this in mind, let's hear one more time on okay. the girls only healthcare dry shampoo, dawn till dusk, revives hair between washes, which is actually mine. I use it for camping and it's very good. Okay, here we go. I'm not sure your mic's ever going to recover. <laughs> I did, did my best to point it away, but I did have horrifying images of, um, <laughs> yep, just clogging up my lovely new mic with pure hairspray. It is a 58 though, so you'd have to try really hard to kill a 58. Have you ever seen that video of the people reversing a lorry over a 58 and burying it in the garden and running it under a tap and stuff and, and it always still working? No. The, and hammering a nail in with it. And it's just fine afterwards. I can believe that. And they abuse this thing so much and it still passes clean audio. Amazing. I love them to pieces. Um, so anyway, seamlessly from that toast foley, I have to ask you, Mike... What's your jam? Now, I'm going to have to give you a bit of background here. Cause okay. This is a confluence, oh, what a lovely word, of, of a number of different things that all come together in this little moment of perfection, or like 20 minutes of perfection for me, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the first thing I need to say is Yo-Yo Ma. Okay. Arguably the greatest living cellist. Absolutely. Never afraid to collaborate outside the like classical field. You know, he's done stuff with Bobby McFerrin. He's done this Silk Road stuff. There's kind of lots of kind of Eastern influences. He's done the Songs of Joy and Peace, which is more kind of Nashville country stuff. Yeah. So already I think he's cool, but I have a particularly soft spot for him because when I was between the ages of 15 and 17, mm. every summer I attended the Tanglewood Music Festival, okay. which is this big open air classical music festival close to Boston, Massachusetts, which is the summer residence of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Right. And they basically have concerts every day for about nine weeks. And every name in the classical music pantheon is there. All the biggest names come through and do concerts. Oh. I mean, I was on their like student orchestral program. And so not only does this get you into all the concerts, every single one of them, mm -hmm. but also it was a mind-blowing experience for me. It was like you're playing like eight hours a day for like two months in the, for the entire summer holidays. But a load of these people would actually come and do masterclasses and conduct us and play with us really? and whatever else. So I had like masterclasses with Itzhak Perlman and John Williams and Leonard Slatkin and Seiji Ozawa. While we were there, Yo-Yo Ma used to come and perform pretty much every summer. Mm. He performed with our orchestra. He did the uh, Prokofiev Symphony Concertanti oh with us. My so God. we were rehearsing with him and, and performing with him. And he's just such a gent, such a lovely guy. Anyway, so I just have such a soft spot for Yo-Yo Ma. So that's the first thing. The second thing, have you ever heard of a guy called Chris Thiele? Oh, my God. I was reared. I was weaned 
on Nickel Creek. Oh, well, there you go. Well, for the benefit of listeners who haven't heard Chris Thiele, he is an absolutely astonishing mandolinist and composer. Stop listening to us now. Just, like, get yourself to YouTube. Yeah. And thank us later. He's really big on the country music and bluegrass scene, but he really collaborates widely across different styles. You know, he goes plays classical stuff. He goes almost towards alternative pop with some of his projects. But he's just incredible. Mm. He's a phenomenal mandolinist and musician. He is. I'm, I'm so glad he's getting featured here. I feel like he's finally made it. <laughs> now, the third thing is, have you heard of a record called The Goat Rodeo Sessions? I have. I fear we are just in taste too similar sometimes. But break down The Goat Rodeo Sessions. What is it and why? Why is it? Well, Goat Radio is basically where Chris Thiele and Yo-Yo Ma got together with a couple of uber Nashville virtuosos. <laughs> a guy called Stuart Duncan, a fiddle player, and um, Edgar Mayer, who's a double bass player. And they got together as a quartet to just create this kind of crossover bluegrass classical album thing that is simply astonishing. It's one of the most astonishing records that I've ever heard. Mm. On one count, just because all of them are virtuosos of the grade of Yo-Yo Ma and Chris Thiele, but also because it was recorded, mixed and mastered by a guy called Richard King, who is the only living engineer to have won both the classical and non-classical Best Engineering Grammys. No! Really? And it, it is one of the best sounding records I've ever heard, as well as phenomenal virtuoso technique and ensemble dynamics and everything. It just blows my mind whenever I listen to it. That's kind of everything you need, isn't it? I was so impressed with the record that I actually tracked him down at the AES show and insisted on interviewing from Sound on Sound because I just wanted to know his secret because it sounded so incredible. Good. So you've got this astonishing kind of combination of events. And then the Goat Radio people did an NPR Tiny Desk concert. Did they actually? Yes. All of them around a single microphone performing some of the stuff off the record. Oh. This is my jam for this month. It's that NPR session because, honestly, I, I listen to it and there are more occasions of me going, f***ing hell, <laughs> in that video than any other thing I have ever seen. I mean, I must have said it at least five times during the process of these three or four songs that they did. It's absolutely phenomenal. You know, it's so easy when you're in a project studio to get into the habit of thinking, okay, we're constantly having to fix things and get different takes and whatever else. And then you just watch these four absolute virtuosos nail this phenomenally difficult stuff effortlessly and kind of joking amongst themselves while they're doing it and it's all there's no mixing there's nothing it's one bloody mic no not a thing honestly no one has any excuse <laughs> it's things like that that make me think you know if you're a musician bloody get your stuff together yeah why, why aren't you Chris Thiele also, in general, the NPR concerts are brilliant. They're magnificent, it's true. I mean, obviously, occasionally there's the odd idiot with the ukulele, but <laughs> other than that, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's true, that has been known, has been known to happen on occasion, but very rarely. <laughs> just to fill people in there a bit. This Must is, we? I was just taking the a little bit out of John for his appearance on NPR, which is a great uh, show with, was it Sam Lee? Thank you. It was Sam Lee that time, yeah. So what was your behind-the-scenes take on that? I mean, I came as a huge fan, obviously, so there were, yeah, there were many selfies taken and, and... Oh, I bet. Just a very nervous, adoring conversation I had with Bob Boylan. But to be honest, there just isn't a behind-the-scenes. It's Bob Boylan's desk where he works when there aren't musicians cluttering it up. Yeah. It's on the lunch hour, so people come on their lunch, and there is just a couple of hand cams. Yeah. We rattle through the set acoustically. 
And that's it. That's, that's what you see. That's what comes out at the end. Wow. I mean, brilliant cinematographers and great sound engineers, but it is live. I tell you what was exciting, though, was seeing the birthday cake they got Chris Thiele, like, whatever it was, 15 years ago. Wow. That's sealed inside a plastic case, and it looks all kinds of worse for wear. Oh, <laughs> I bet it does, yeah. That has not aged nearly as well as Chris, suffice it to say. Oh, but no, tremendous. that is my go-to place for, like discovering cool new music. Yeah, well, I mean, also, I think that principle of the Tiny Desk concerts, that's one of the only things we have left now Mm. that we can still pretty much say that is real. Oh, interesting. I mean, they could fake it, I suppose, but it's one of those few things that you think they probably haven't. You think that mm. fundamentally it hasn't been faked. It is a real live thing. It is. It has real jeopardy to it. There's really a sense that if they cock it up, we'd hear them cock it up. You're going to hear that, yeah. In fact, on the goat radio thing, there was one bit where I thought, oh yeah, one of them came in a bit early. It's just a real thing. That's just something that happens. But it really highlights to me sometimes the differences between people who really just blow you away live, like Christelia and that bunch. Yeah. And although I really respect her, Adele. I was about to bring up Adele's one. Adele's NPR concert was utterly underwhelming. No, it was. It was. It was such a shame. I mean, I really like her music. I really like her productions. But it had nothing on Chris Thiele. No, I, I agree. And any of Chris Thiele's ones. He's been on there about four times now. <laughs> it's true. I think he's just got a room. Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers and... Um... Edgar Mayer. I think he just did uh, Bass and Mandolin because he had a record out that won a Grammy. Oh, yeah. Loser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a banana smoothie for breakfast. So that's pretty cool, too. We've all got our achievements to shout about. So, as usual, we have squeezed 110% goodness into Project CDOT Break this month. We are two desiccated husks of men. We are. After all that we have laid out for you here in this podcast. We'll have to be rehydrated before the next, <laughs> for the next episode. <laughs> Some means or another. But if you cannot get enough, even if even 110% is not enough, you need another 75% or whatever it is. <laughs> over to the Patreon site where there is even more new bonus material in addition to the extras we put up before. I'm talking about my cult leader hypnotism antics in my class at school. I can personally recommend that one. Uh, This discussion of uh, cassette DJing, pros and cons of fear training, and of course... That pressing question, what is wrong with my speakers? We're, we're take, we'll take that on. We give it the full benefit of our experience. We give it all the respect it deserves, and then rather a lot more, in my, in my personal opinion. And um, join our burgeoning community of tea breakers like John Seals uh, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash PSTB books or Twitter uh, at twitter.com slash PSTB tweets. And I'll be posting my Instagram-ready picture (laughs) of my iced biscuits. Absolutely. And I will be setting us up on Instagram as soon as I have a phone that can run it. (laughs) (laughs) It'll happen. It'll happen. I have faith. Which leaves us with just enough time to thank uh, this month's sponsor. Indeed. It's the wonderful people over at Stick It To Me premier vendors of artisan hand-formed self-adhesive vinyl patches. Fabulous. Been wanting to get these guys on for a while, and there's actually a new range of stickers that they want us particularly to tell our listeners about. Well, tell us about them. So, Mike, you know the magical aura that someone has when they're carrying a guitar case? Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyone sees them, they think... 
on their way to a rock concert, I bet. Mm. They must be talented, successful, and live a free, exciting life. Yeah. And there's something similar with a violin case slung over the shoulder. They're probably off to do the Brahms D major concerto. Or they're a very classy hit person. Or they're a very classy hit person. Either one of which you should be happy (laughs) to have yourself associated with. Yeah. But what Stick It To Me is raising awareness of is that not everyone is that lucky. Okay. The world is full of flautists. It's true. Of clarinetists. Mm. Of people whose exciting instrument case just looks sort of like a suitcase or, or a pencil case. Yeah. Disappointing. And that's not okay. And that's where Stick It To Me's True You Musician Patches come in. Um, because they believe that everyone has a right to be seen as who they truly are, holding a cool <laughs> instrument that defines them. So, Mike, imagine if rather than just seeing someone with a really embarrassingly tiny suitcase, yeah. that you saw a sticker on it that said, It's a flute, actually. Ah. And then in brackets underneath, a lightsaber with buttons. (laughs) All of a sudden, they've revealed themselves. It's true. Other models include, it's a clarinet, actually, a classy (laughs) saxophone. They're letting musicians redefine themselves. Or you could double bluff. You could have it on your tuba case to say, actually, it's a first trumpet. (laughs) Yeah, when you get really good, they make them bigger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sort of thing. (laughs) Well, I mean, many thanks to uh, to Stick It To Me. Very generous supporters, long-time fans of the show, uh, first-time sponsors, so... And uh, just for those listeners, um, this is radio. (laughs) (laughs) It's a podcast, actually. Radio, but cooler. How's that? Yeah, that's the one. There we go. I'll see if they'll make us one of those. Oh, wait, we decided on a um, on a sign-off last week. Did we? We had one. Oh, uh, um, yes. <laughs> it was Tar Love You Ducks, but I don't know whether that's... <laughs> I think the fans have spoken. We need to have alternatives. <laughs> okay. Okay, have you, have you got one for this week? Come up with someone. Go on, Okay, go okay, on. okay, I've got it. Um, Be inspired. Okay. Uh, and that's all from us here at Project Studio Tea Break. Sound advice. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think that'll work. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>